Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. And um, you know, people sometimes say to me, you know, they think it's ridiculous that I bothered to get all up in drags, you know, for radio. I say, well, we have a lovely little studio audience, and they want the full-on glamour. Um, anyway, thank you and welcome to Pantisocracy. What we think was sort of my parlor of conversations, really. So today, I want to introduce you, as usual, four really interesting people doing wonderful things. First of all, well, he's a northerner. He's known to most of us by the name Duke Special, but his, to his mother, he's known as Peter Wilson. He's come all the way from Belfast to be with us today, so thank you so much, Peter. Um, and then we have a woman who, um, well, she hails from West Cork and whose roots are in cattle, but she's sort of left the cattle behind, and uh, she has sort of made a life bringing edgy drama to the stage, and is soon to take up a new role at the Abbey Theatre as a producer of new work. Uh, please welcome the flame-haired Jen Coppinger. <laughs> and over here, um, well, we have a writer and an actor and a man that I have had um, the pleasure of sharing stages and dressing rooms and rehearsal rooms and tents with uh, Mr. Emmett Kirwan. <laughs> Emmett, of course, uh, recently has uh, spoken word film Heartbreak, uh, which is about the journey of a young single mother in Ireland picked up an IFTA earlier this year. So um, we're all very proud of him. And then, um, last but not least, we have a more southern influence, another Cork man, Mr. Owen French. That's the handsome one there at the end. And um, well, he's a sort of an architect turned musician, which I know that makes him even more attractive, doesn't it? And he's joining us with his band Talos, and um, what the Irish Times call his wonderful falsetto. And he's going to play for us. <laughs> But first, you know, my name is in the title of this show, which means that I get to uh, start things off with a monologue that we call the Panty Monologues. <laughs> um, you know, when we put these guests together, I'm often sort of then you're looking for what things might tie them together. And I think in, in this case, one of the things that I was thinking about is the idea of alter egos. And of course, we all have alter egos, or at least I would suggest we all have alter egos. It's just that some of them are more obvious than others. Now, I, of course, am Rory's alter ego, and I know he would say he's very lucky to have me, and he is. <laughs> In a way, I'm his superhero. I'm the Batman to his Bruce Wayne, the Spidey to his Peter, the Jill to his Farrah Fawcett. No, I'm a stronger, braver, more colorful, more vibrant version of him. Arguably, uh, the more fun version of him. Definitely the more intimidating version of him. But I'm more than that, too, because um, I'm a statement of intent. I'm Rory's inner punk, giving two fingers to convention and its arbitrary, constricting rules about what men are and what women are, about how men dress and how women dress, and how each presents themselves and how each behaves. But I'm even more than that, too, because I am also, in a way, his joy, you know, his dressing-up box, his bag of crayons, his coloring book, and his glitter glue. Lots of glitter glue. But I'm even more than that, too, because I'm his... Well, revenge is too strong a word, but I would say I am his satisfying riposte. You know, he took all the times that people tried to make him feel bad about parts of himself, and all the times that they succeeded, all the little sneers and barbs from people who thought he was too queer or too femme, you know, all the people who saw his feminine qualities as weakness, and he threw those qualities back at them as strength in the shape of this cartoon. 
and he is bloody lucky to have me. But of course, I think we all have our alter egos, you know, different facets of ourselves that we present at different times. You know, the woman in the navy jacket and the sensible shoes with her hair clipped back at the job interview on Monday is the same woman who is wearing a bra top and hanging out over a balcony above a dance floor in Ibiza with a gin and tonic in her hand on her holidays on Friday. <laughs> and they are both her, you know, both authentically her. Neither of them is a lie. They're just different facets of her. And the giant cartoon you see before you, well, is real too. I'm not a lie, I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> Now, obviously, I'm going to come to you first, Peter, if I may, because you have the most obvious alter ego here, you know, Juke Special. And um, people often, like I mentioned earlier, they, they, they laugh at the idea that I do it for a radio show. But I always say to them that the reason I do it for this radio show, apart from bringing a little glamour to these, the audience's grey, dreary lives, is um, <laughs> that people react differently to Panty than they do to Rory. And they have different kinds of conversations with her. I would suggest more open conversations with her, I think because they think Panty won't judge them. You know, how, how could she? <laughs> yeah, but, so why did you consciously create an alter ego to perform through? For a number of reasons. One, my name. Some would say common, I would say popular. Um, <laughs> Peter Wilson, uh, there are quite a few. There was something I loved about the feel of a band. Uh, mm. There's something mysterious about that, which you didn't seem to get from a, going by your given name <laughs> when you were yeah. born. So I, part of it was that. And, and definitely part of it was it became a vehicle where I could say things that I, I felt I couldn't say in, in normal life. It was like a safety kind of thing as mm. well, where I could be this different part of yourself, yeah. a more amplified version of certain aspects of myself. It was something that I thought would be more theatrical, would be more kind of interesting to see and to wonder about than just me. Because <laughs> I identify to so totally with all of that. Because to me, Panty is like an armor. And then I feel like I'm more st a stronger person when I've put on this sort of armor. So... Do you feel, as Duke special, a different energy? Or do you feel inside that you're different? I think it, it helps me make the transition from being at the side of the stage. And if I thought about it too much, that feeling of, oh my goodness, I'm about to go out in front of people mm. who are all looking at you. Yeah. And you're about to have stuff come out of your mouth, hopefully tuneful things. Yeah. <laughs> um, psychologically, it was quite a, a jump to go from normal life mm. to this performance. So I guess in the same way that actors would put on clothes that... Yeah enable them to own the character and to be this person on stage, I, I find it a helpful thing as well. And, uh, you know, I, I read somewhere that you once said you needed to pull back a bit away from Duke special because in a way you felt it was, you were getting a little lost in him. I suppose I toured for about 15 years and it became more normal for me being this amplified person. Mm. I think the balance tipped <laughs> in the wrong way. So I've, I've spent more time at home, been touring less and... and being Peter <laughs> more, yeah. and I, I think it's been a really healthy thing for me the last few years to, to be doing that less. And well, well, I have to say that I, I've, I've never felt that because I've never felt lost in this. Because I think sometimes on the outside, people don't always understand that it is the same person. You know, Panty and Rory, they're so melded that they are really just different facets of me. And because Owen, you um, also, in a way, created this alter ego. And because... You know, so you're, you're this handsome young architect, and then you have this music thing, Talos. You know, why is it that there's things you felt you can't really say 
as the bloke from Cork, but you can say as your Greek mythological suit. I think when I when I started in music, my biggest kind of fear was trying to find that justification to be able to say, okay, look, like I actually do have inverted commas a voice. Yeah, and in a way. I think hiding behind that name, that idea of like a shelter mm. was that idea of kind of liberating that fear or something. You know? yeah. And just allowing myself to kind of find a voice in that as opposed to my personal self or something. Yeah. Well, you know, we've only just met, but already we're <laughs> such and such the same <laughs> way again here. Because I, where, where I'm going with all of this is about finding our voice. So but we're going to get back to the voice. Because why Thalas? Explain the, the, maybe the myths for people. Because it's not one of the most comp- popular ones, is it? You had to go and pick something obscure. I kind of came across this story and it, it spoke into kind of themes of, I suppose, isolation and strength in isolation and protectiveness and kind of harboring a, a haven, I suppose. And, and that's what music <clears throat> is to me in a way, or like what I do is to me. So, and on a very kind of simple note, when I kind of saw it written down, I was like, okay, that, that actually kind of looks good as well. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I agree. And that, 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 kind of is, down, yes. that kind of is, that kind of is, was a thing for me as well, do you know? Because yeah, it's funny because, you know, for me, I got into drag for lots of different reasons, mostly because it was fun and you, you were paid to get drunk, essentially. And the main reason that I kept it up, you know, as I got older and everything, is because I had things that I wanted to say, but I didn't really feel that I could say them, you know, in a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. Whereas actually, Amish, your alter ego isn't quite the same in that you basically are yourself without the need for you know adding feathers on but in another way you have because people are defined by many things but your sort of persona now as a public person is very much defined and rooted in certain aspects of yourself for example your working class background and coming from Tala and all of that and was that a conscious decision to say I'm going to present myself as the working man or that was just something that happened naturally when you go to college and you do drama school, you have all these kind of high fluting kind of ideas that you're essentially going to become all these great characters, you know, and that you're going to have a transformative quality, almost like going from Rory to Panty. Yeah. And you're like, if only could, people could see my range. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you're, you spend like, you know, four years sitting at a bed sick going, why am I getting parts? You know, and uh, what happens is you actually figure out after a while that most actors are employed or they're employed for essentially being a version of themselves. Yeah or the best version of themselves they can be. So I probably fought it for a long time, the roots of what I was or who I was and my own accent. And then I actually just went, you know what? The majority, the nine times out of 10, when you're being cast or when people want to work with you, they want to work with you because of the unique element of your personality that's different from other actors and you see in LA or you see you know performers they all look the same and they all want to be the same you know so I kind of just had to get with the program when I was about maybe 25 or 26 and said Mm. you just need to embrace this because people will want to work with you because of the voice that you have and the unique perspective possibly that you have, you know? I mean, listeners at home are probably listening to your voice thinking, that is so familiar because, of yeah. course, you know, in a way you've been co-opted, you know, oh, by, yeah. by, by, the, by the corporate world because your actual physical voice is used on so many ads and yeah. voiceovers and all of that. Yeah, and that's the thing they purposely do, you know, you kind of, they want something that is working class but also at the same time is communicative in, yeah. a, in a way that gets a message across, you know what I mean? So whether that be a radio play or, or an ad or something like that, you know, so... I'm flogging merch. Business cards. Yeah, business cards. Communicable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Non-threatening working class voice. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jane, you're a producer, and I always feel slightly sorry for producers out in the real world because out in the real world, people often don't know what you really do. They don't really understand it, and then when they look it up, it gives a very dry explanation that oh, it's about money and putting the money together. Whereas actually, 
know, I know that all the best producers I've ever worked with are artists in their own right. And in a way, you have facilitated other people finding their voice, in a sense. The main thing really is, as a producer, you're going to have to watch the show about 30 times, (laughs) at least. So you need to be the biggest champion of it and the biggest Mm. fan of it. And for me, I'm really lucky in that there aren't that many people in Ireland who are mad enough to want to be a producer. So I get asked by really talented people, Mm. would I work with them? And I think of the audience all the time, really, and what they will find interesting. So I suppose it has to have an angle that I think that the audience will really enjoy in one way or another. Um, Now, you're from West Cork, and you're sitting beside another Corkonian, but of course West Corkonians think of themselves as a world apart, really, don't they? the 33rd county, I was saying yesterday. (laughs) 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 Uh, And there's no theatre or that in your background? No, not at all, actually. My father was a cattle dealer, and my brother is a cattle dealer. And we're a working-class family. I was the first to go to university. Mm -hmm. Cinema even closed down Bantry when I was 12 or 13, so there was nothing. (laughs) To get on a bus for an hour to get to see anything. So it meant that you had to really work hard to get to watch stories and I was really influenced by film then yeah. for a lot of my teenage years. Because uh, originally you planned to go into film. Yeah. Movies, yeah. yeah, and then I arrived in Trinity and got hooked on the Drama Society, their players, and I did a, a degree in philosophy, but I really did a degree in producing in a way because that's mm. what I did all the time. Yeah. Um, and we all took ourselves far too seriously and thought that we, what we were doing was more significant than what the Abbey was doing at the time or what <laughs> anyone was doing. Yeah, yeah, very cocky. Maybe you're right. Um, So yeah, it was was an amazing place to go to college, actually. And a lot of people that I met there, I still work with or or I would certainly be very close with. And the Trinity Mafia lives on, you know, you you make a lot of friends there. Like I'm from a small town in Mm. the West of Ireland and then, you know, and my interests, you know, dragged me, if I... Yeah. Excuse the pun. You know, drag me out into other parts of the world. And I'm always delighted that I come from a small country town. Because I think, you know, you dubs, for example, you will never really, you know, experience or understand your know, country life. Mm. Whereas we country bumpkins who then mm. had to move to the city now, we end up with a good, you know, understanding of both. And whereas, you know, my Dublin friends, they have no idea yeah. what it's like to pull a lamb out of a sheep or, you know, you know yeah. all, that, all that stuff, all that great country stuff, whatever. Yeah. But, but, but I, what I also noticed about, you know, so many of my friends who are from small towns is they're kind of divided into two groups. The, the ones who kind of ran out and never really reconnected back or, mm-hmm. you know, they're dragged back at Christmas and, you know, whatever. And then the other ones who are still so tied to where they come from mm. and their origins and their family and the, the local teams and, and all that stuff. Which one are you? I'm the latter, really. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was lucky in a way because I was saving to move to New York for a little bit in my 20s. So I moved back to Bantry for about six months and that really helped me reconnect back into the mm. town. And that was really good in terms of appreciating it and also appreciating that I don't want to live there, like um, any more than maybe at holiday time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bantry hate. Um, But uh, my niece is a bit of a rock star in Bantry in that she plays camogie for Cork and football. She's a dual player. Now, I I should know her name, but... As you might have guessed, I'm not a huge sports fan, <laughs> um, but she's a Coppinger as well, right? Yeah, Libby Coppinger, yeah. So she's, she played three All-Irelands in one month last year, so she's big news around Bantry, yeah. Um, and, and, and they couldn't give a crap about you, I guess. No, not at all. <laughs> um, 
So it's really, I do love going home and I do love spending time with my family. Mm. But I suppose the older you get, the less that you're actually interested in going out for a pint or anything yeah. like that when you go home. And it is about just hanging out but we're both very lucky in that we're from very beautiful parts of the country yes, so it is yeah. nice and and because I'm from Cork I think it's the best part of the world really <laughs> <laughs> now, now Emmett you're another person who's absolutely rooted in your sense of place yeah in a way you know Tala will always be with you yeah absolutely and yeah. um, well yeah any plays I've noticed or like a TV series that I wrote here and Steve, like they're all kind of set there. And, and Dublin City as well, the, those yeah. two kind of places, because they're the places that I, the formative years of my life, I suppose, in Tallaght, and then the rest of my 20s down in Dublin, you know. It's kind of, I don't say, I mean, it's everything I am, but I mean, it's, it, 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 it's influenced me greatly in yeah. how I perceive the world, especially how I perceive Ireland. Yeah. Because I actually see a little connection between us when I was thinking about it, because in a lot of ways, I staked my identity on my queerness. And, and sometimes people sort of, roll their eyes about that even some of these other gay people and I'm like well why not you know some people they say they're in their Irishness for example and, and I would say that you know my queerness has been a bigger influence on me than my Irishness even or, 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 or similar so I, I don't mind that the world looks at me and thinks of me as the, oh, the first thing they think is gay you know but it does annoy me sometimes then when they see everything about me through this prism of, of, of gayness you know so for you in the theatre world and whatever you are seen through the prism of working class Tala and everything that's directed towards you in some ways comes from that. So do you ever find this limiting or a... No, because, you know what, I think that I've a unique kind of opportunity to represent a working class voice in modern context. Because yeah. the majority of the time, and especially even on Irish television, the majority of working class voices or representations of working class voices are usually working class buffoonery. Mm. So, you know, Damo and Ivor, yeah. um, you know, whatever other kind of, it's always some sort of like shtick character, you know, mm. that kind of way. And it's, and it like, and you see it replicated, like there's ones from Cork, there's ones from Limerick, yeah. you know, they're all kind of the same thing. So everything is about communication. And if it's about politics, especially politics from the left, which can often be quite frantic and kind of like angry and shouty, I find you can get a lot more across by just being slow and steady and measured in your response yeah. and articulous. And that kind of confounds people as well because they're expecting it to go, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So you maintain that general essence of who you are, how you sound, where you're from, you know? Yeah. Um, and now, Peter, because you're from Northern Ireland, you're from Lisburn, although you live in Belfast now, is that right? Yeah, various places have yeah. been on the run. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, there's no more, you know, that I can think of that is more defined by your place. You know, people around the world have an idea of what that place is. And even down here where we're living right beside it, you know, we, we, we can't help but be influenced by its history and, and all those things. Is that a burden for you as an artist? I've never felt constrained by it. I'm aware of people's perceptions. Um, I think being creative and uh, being involved in the arts has given me a, a way of dealing with that and exploring it. And I think people are way more complex yeah. than, you know, even how we present ourselves sometimes, yeah. you know, because you may think one thing, but you, you know, you also think maybe something else entirely different mm. all at the same time. Yeah. And I, I find that really interesting. And I, I, I'm aware of that in myself. Yeah. So I love being able to, to write about that. Um, let's have some music, please. Um, Owen, you're, you're up first. Do you want to tell us what a little about it introduced for yourself? Uh, it's a song called In Time. So it was a song we released 18 months ago now, but it's on um, our debut album, which came out two months ago. Mm. 
you know, the first thing I knew about you was... Um, uh, oh, Tethered Bones. <laughs> yes, t- Tethered Bones. You know, so there's a bit of a story behind that. I, so you had a girlfriend at the time, and, she, she got, and you were about to move to LA. You'd gotten the, you know, the, the architect dream job, and then she became sick, and you decided to stay and look after her for a while. Yeah, well, not, not look after, really, just decided to stay, I suppose, yeah. And um, Talos in itself was probably born from, from that decision in that... I just left college. There was nothing in architecture or anything at the time, really. And um, you just ask yourself a proper question then, really, is, like, what do you really want to do, you know? Yeah. And you're, you're being accompanied here? Yeah, this is Alex. Hi, Alex. Thank you for being here. Oh, 
I heard you before I saw you, so I was totally surprised when I saw what that voice was coming out of. Um, you know, it's the story of my life. <laughs> now, the other thing about you is that um, there's this thing about Iceland. Oh, yeah. And yeah, all yeah. the hipsters love Iceland yeah, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And you're moving there? Not well. I think it's a debate in my own head at the moment, I suppose. But yeah, I think there's a fear that it'll become a bit um, the thing to do. I've been going over there for the last, and kind of recording there for the last, um, well, since I started this, actually. Uh, but what brought you there in the first place? What's the connection? Very simple thing. My, my friend was over there and he was running a label, a record label, and he had a, a free studio. And I suppose I was very broke and I was like, a free studio kind of makes a lot of sense. So that was kind of, that was literally it. And I think, I think you're kind of spot on in that at the moment there is that kind of fear that it will actually become kind of hypersaturated in, in, or like the mecca of like... Well, you know, it, it sort of moves around, doesn't it? The, 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 the hot sort of place. And, and it, but it used to be moving around between like, you know, New York and London and Berlin, yeah, you know, yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. But for suddenly to jump to Iceland, yeah. you know, which is the population of Galway or something, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, <laughs> it, it's such a weird one. You know, I never would have anticipated that a few years well, ago. Well, I think that. it's, um, there's a definite kind of starkness there that does force you to kind of do something or make mm. something anyway. Like when I go there and record or write there, I do tend to make things that are like heavily influenced by the surroundings. In yeah, because it is interesting to me um, that sitting right beside you, Jen Coppinger, who is also from Cork, and you also have this kind of thing with Iceland. Yeah, I've been there three times at this brilliant festival called Airwaves. Mm-hmm. So it's a platform of Icelandic music and then they have international acts as well. And it's in various locations around Reykjavik. So they have an amazing concert hall there called Harpa. So you might go and see Bjork in Harpa and mm. then you go and see a tiny band in uh, like a, a sweater shop. <coughs> it's, yeah. So it's kind of bizarre. But Amy's show, her first show, I Heart Alice Heart I, toured to Iceland. I love that show, I Heart Alice Heart I. And, you know, you know, I, I wanted to come around again so I can send more people to it. Oh, great, yeah. yeah. And, and just for people who don't know, I Heart Alice Heart I, well, you tell me, it's about two older women. And yeah, it's a beautiful love story about two women called Alice Slattery and Alice Kensler that Amy wrote in 2010. And it's portrayed like they're real people. So they perform it 
like very nervous women arriving to the stage and you, everyone falls in love with them and falls in love with their story as well. Yeah. But people get a bit upset when they realise they're not real people, which I find. <laughs> we're in a theatre, people. <laughs> so uh, apparently there was a man crying for an hour and a half in Reykjavik when he realised they weren't real, which is kind of hilarious and sweet. <laughs> One thing that you touched on, you is in a way, certainly particular arts, were kind of a, a solitary pursuit writing certainly was and but even painting and maybe even filmmaking in some ways you did your thing and it was your thing and you got on with it but i think the digital age arrived and it opened up all of the arts to more people because it's easier to make things whatever and it's very interesting to me that all of you here have crossed the boundaries between our forms so for example with you emmet so you wrote a poem heartbreak but then it became a film and then that film went on to win awards as a film and then of course it, it's also performed live on stage. and So it's very collaborative. You know, you work with other artists in other fields and it has sort of expanded the work in a way that that, did, that used not really happen so much. Yeah, I suppose it's what they call cultivating your social capital because you don't have actual financial capital. Yeah. So you identify the individuals around you that you feel you could work with because, yeah. as we know, it's a very solitary kind of thing that you do and when you create it, it takes deep thought, mm. deep time, shutting the doors and shutting everything out mm. and then when it comes out you go okay well who's around me that could collaborate with me and to make this and used, what used to happen was before the democratisation of art with the internet was there was gatekeepers yeah. so you would have to go to a producer who go I don't really see it now you know that was now, you Dan yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. no 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 you're no, a no, new no. breed you know, I was talking about the guy with the big cigar and it's like yeah. I don't see it kid you know uh, <laughs> but uh, so now what you can do is because cameras are you know the ubiquitous nature of cameras and how cheap not cheap they are but you can get like film quality cameras for a very small amount so yeah. you can just get a number of people together and you can say look let's make a piece of art and I think yeah. we could do this now, yeah, and of course you, you know, performed in um, Dublin Old School which was a, a big success and you know in the, you were in the national in London there a few months ago and with it and, um, and people loved that show um, and now it's been made into a film by the same director who yeah. made the short film of Heartbreak That's right. and Element Pictures are behind it like it's, it's all, the, all the good people you've got all the good people on yeah, board yeah. it's about two brothers uh, one of them is a homeless heroin addict who's living on the streets of Dublin and the other character is a DJ who's kind of careering through Dublin mm. on, a, on a chemically induced weekend yeah. and he bumps into his brother who he hasn't seen in three years and they reconnect over the course of this long bank holiday weekend interspersed with like hilltop raves and Garda mm. raids and uh, all these different things and it's all done through verse in the first eight minutes it's done through rap and then it's done through spoken word poetry and then it's also done through kind of heightened movement and uh, a stylistic kind of movement and then also just regular you know theatre just yeah. two people talking on stage yeah. you know and you slogged through a whole month in Edinburgh, which is true. Right? Yeah, and I mean, in, a, in a shipping container. Yeah, <laughs> but, like, but at the yeah. beginning of the month, because I was there at the same time, you know, the beginning of the yes. month, you were like really having to work, you know, because these audiences, you know, never didn't know. But by the end of the month, the word of mouth had just blown it up. You're kind of, the first week you're kind of doing a play about ketamine and yokes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you're screaming at like, you know, five like very elderly kind of women who actually, in fairness to them, all loved it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were absolutely confused. It was like, what's he? 
yolk. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then afterwards, then you'd think, oh my God, we're after dying on our arse. But then you come out and they're like, oh, that was really lovely. We, we love the energy, you know? Uh, we didn't understand it. <laughs> you remember all the words. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, what they yeah. say to you and there's nothing else to say. And you didn't pull sort of the ideas out of your head because it's actually based on something from your own life, really. Yeah, it's personal experience, but the, the story is based in Dublin, but I was in London on 9-11 in 2001. I went over to audition for a musical and uh, I hadn't seen my brother in three years. We'd become estranged and then I found him on the streets. Mm. I was watching the planes go into the towers and then it's near, it's near Piccadilly and then I went around the corner and I bumped into him and it was just bizarre kind of situation. Uh, you know, because like the world is essentially falling apart. You know, like people were kind of falling apart. People were like, this was kind of the beginning of some sort of end of days kind of moment. And then like, you know, people are being torn apart. But then I was kind of reconnected on a street yeah. corner in London with my brother. It's so incredible. that you, Emma, you were going to do a little piece from Dublin Old School. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose I could just do it here. Go. Uh, cool. I stick my head over the wall and the heat and the noise of the city hits me face like a hot gush of piss. Fuck did I leave that bike? It's on the corner where we met Dave the Rave. Is that why Bobby brought me there? A check for the inefficient intermittent, guard of patrols, then a head into the red brick warren of the liberties. I am like rabbit when I run. Me head periscoping with those quick necks and checks, and all the yellows on the smoking steps. Gone the days. What, what, what? Sneaky sucker down Mead Street, the wrong way, past the trader still peddling their ways, giving the crooked stairs, and my place of work where you can still get 12 inches of vinyl. On Fridays we close up shop at six Nose points in the Pygmalion I'm rattling I need to stay off the quay All I'll ever do is put me in a hole It's like that little climber and the price is right You know the one Just enough you get a little cash prize of a buzz But too much And then you bally mun down the side of a cliff Into an anaesthetic abyss I don't remember ringing Bobby to come get me Speaking of which Where's he? Lisa's gaff maybe I'm halfway up South Circular and I can hear Lisa's gap before I see it. She answers the door, head full of what is that? Toothpaste. The place is wall to wall. People in the hallway and in every step of the stairs tread through. Everybody just off walking, stocking up from stock boys to data entry, Bricky's apprentice, architects, customer service, civil service, service, service. The children are mundane on the brain. They're all here getting ready to give their minds a chemical kicking. Now I have the fever and I want four stabs. This is a designated session. Gaff. You wouldn't want to live in it. A faded Victorian that's now somewhere between student digs and a fucking crack den. I walk into the kitchen and I see Bobby cooking Dave the Rave's ketamine in the microwave. The microwave dings and the liquid has evaporated into a large plate of Class B dust. Anybody want to bump? People crowd the plate and took Pigs with piggy bank cards queuing at a trough. I hear that light, salty, crystallised ketamine crush. Under the note and a glass bottle and then the push up the nose I see the crinkle of the faces as it stings Do you want some? Oh, I will bang out just a smidge Head back throws, brain blossoms like a rose But then withers and dies I'm playing catch up So I crack that rapper madman on the counter Grey and white rocks the size of Jolly Rancher it's a napalm explosion in the Southeast Asian jungle that is my fucking nose hair. Agent Orange defoliating me brain. Grab the bike, still early light. Vanilla on the back of the black pits. Town is pulsing, moving. There's boys and girls shouting, Yup! To prove to them and their friends that they exist right now. Down Georgia Street, exchequer, slide into me lane. I stop 
climb the bike, then I drop six cans for later. You see, come four in the morning, I will be the man with six cans and a plan. Torn the tight corner past Andrew's Lane and the cool gay kids in the LGBT smoking outside the club with their war paint on. The battle ready, but not yet battle weary. These kids are just on the cusp and they war. A defiant chant of and what and what. What the fuck, you and what? And now we are far back in the track left. Locked up bike central bank, couldn't the temple bar. Bodies on the cobbles outside the hub. Now that's a club, it's a basement. Dingy, sweaty, sticky. Absolutely perfect for raving. Downstairs, <laughs> place is empty. Aaron's on the decks. I'm gonna ask him, can I play that half hour warm up? He promised. I'm feeling slightly blazing now with the chemical cordage. I feel the back of my neck go whoop. And the corners of my mouth go down. All the promoter sidles up. The DJ builds a groove in a seamless nature until the place explodes and people jump trying to get to the floor above them. The bass, the beats, the high hat hits, and then it's lights on, shouts out, whoo, more chill. I spout onto the street. Clothes stick to the skin. A foreign cold wet top on the back fuck that's mine 5,000 butterflies flapping their wings on every vertebrae of my spine Dublin 3.30 in the morning and everybody is desperately trying to find the session are we here and now we're there yeah it's this gaff it's that gaff here listen you can come but don't blame the riff laugh I just love the idea of, you know, older, you know, you know Edinburgh ladies, you know. You know. Cash me in for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're interested in the whole of the world. Um, now, now, Peter, um, I was talking about sort of the collaborative nature of these uh, things, and I think it's becoming more collaborative. And also uh, how different arts are being brought together. And that from the very beginning was kind of part of your thing. I think initially it was survival because it was performance solo. So I was thinking, how can I make this look interesting on yeah. stage? And I started using a, an old gramophone as a, a way of just creating a scene and playing back and tracks off that. And but I, I suppose more recently, I, it was actually a, a play that I was involved in a few years ago, a, a Brecht play called Mother Courage and Our Children. Yeah. And I had no actual experience in theatre. I'm not an actor or anything like that. But a lady called Deborah Warner, who's a director, um, approached me with, um, and Fiona Shaw, this amazing actress, <coughs> asked me to write music for this new translation of Mother Courage. Yep. And um, that kind of spun me off in this whole other direction where I realised music isn't just for trying to get on the radio, yeah. um, but there's all these different ways that um, music can collide with other art forms. Yep. And... I find that so enriching, yeah. uh, not actually, but, but uh, creatively. <laughs> um, well, it's really easy to do. I'm not an actor, but I often think the, the distinction that people make between you know, theatre and acting and, and, say, cabaret, for example, is a kind of a fake one in some ways. And I assume you know, that you've always had an interest in the cabaret aspect because that's always been part of your shtick, if I can put it that way. I suppose vaudeville was something I originally yeah. drew on because it was bringing people on this journey and there'd be ridiculous and, and strange things and profound things or beautiful things all in the mix. Mm. With theatre, what I, why I felt at home in that world was because it, it, it seemed to be the melting pot of all the different art forms, yeah. visual art, literature, music. I felt at home in that. Yeah. Um, the dreadlocks, for example, you know, you, you stamped this visual thing on yourself and you've kept it. Um, why? Yeah. I just like it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't have any. Which is which is a perfectly reasonable <laughs> answer. Yeah. You know, I think people always want you to have a big reason for doing these things, 
And, so, and sometimes there aren't. It, it's just handy. Yeah. <laughs> it saves me brushing my hair <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> um, and now, so you're, you're, you're sort of painting yourself there. Sometimes. Oh, the theatre was all, you know, nothing else. But you've been artist in residence at the Lyric. Yeah, la- last year. And you have a project coming out of that, is that right? Yeah, um, I'm working on a, a play with music, or a musical, <laughs> um, based on Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Mm. Which is not what I would have immediately guessed you might be working with. I mean, it seems like far away from your Belfast or your Northern Irish upbringing. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because I'm working with a guy called Andrew Doyle, who's the, the book writer, an amazing writer. And he's originally, parents are from Derry, and some people might question the fact that two white people from Northern Ireland are writing this musical about Huckleberry Finn and about uh, racial issues, because I've never been a slave nor black. Um, doesn't mean that I can't identify or somehow empathise yep. with someone you know who's gone through that. Um, and you are going to do something from the Huckleberry Finn project. Yeah, um, this will be the, the opening song, and in the book and indeed in the play, the Mississippi is a recurring theme, and it seemed to represent a mixture of things that re- represented time, the idea of escape, of adventure, of them on the raft in this place, and this is Jim, the slave, singing at the beginning of the play, and it's called The Other Side. Great. Old crimes Old 
soul Old ways, old dreams, old lies Old tears, old times Carry us all to the other side When is Huckleberry Finn happening? I think next autumn, 2018, at the Lyric in Belfast. Oh, so you have plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jen, um, so t- tell us about the new role at the Abbey. Yes, it's really, really exciting. Myself and a woman called Sarah Lynch are coming on board as head of two heads of producing. Yeah. And my aspect will be new work. And that will very much be, hopefully, working with a lot of the artists that I have worked with in the past. Um, I would be really interested in kind of having rural voices on the stage as well. I don't think that's represented hugely mm-hmm. at the moment. So what we'd be doing really is figuring out what the programme is going to be for the next few years, hopefully doing a lot of collaborations with Irish artists and international artists. Um, you know, I live next door to the Abbey. I mean, oh, that's brilliant. My hood. And so I pass it all the time. The other day when I was passing by and there's this huge queue outside in the middle of the day and they're all young people. Mm. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And then I realized, oh, it's this free... Free preview. Free previous things. And it was amazing to me. When was the last time you saw young people queuing up to go into the Abbey? No, it's really exciting. You just never see that. Yeah. I I, I thought there'd been an accident or something. At first, you know, like, (laughs) what's going on here? Mm. But you are also very involved in the Waking the Feminist movement, Mm. which came out of the Abbey in in a weird way. I mean, is it something that you'd... Uh, come up against. Yeah, I think it was. Actually, Leon is here. Leon Bell's here. Um, and uh, so... Which is just, just to be clear for people, so Leon Bell, I didn't, I didn't even know you were in the audience here somewhere. Oh, hi, just down the back. Hi, hi. Well, let's give a round of applause for Leon Bell down the back. And then um, when the Abbey sort of brought out their um, you know, program for a year, Leon looked at it and said, where are the women writers? Yep. And she stood up and complained about that. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that a million people agreed with her. Yep. And it became this sort of powerful and uh, movement. And a lot of change has been affected already. And at the time of the Waking the Nation program being announced, I did a kind of intake of breath through my eyes to heaven and went like, you know, more of the same and it was really amazing to have Leon actually go no I'm going to publicly say it and are you happy to get involved and god it was one of the most exciting weeks leading up to that event that happened on the 12th of November in 2015 where we all went on the stage of the Abbey and you would have been doing your noble call earlier that year as well so it was kind of a 
for the likes of me who, who don't perform or I'm not in front of audiences to speak on the stage at the Abbey, mm. I mean, it was terrifying. But we were also angry and yeah. kind of full of um, reasons why we had to speak up. It did sadden me a little bit, though, that I wasn't brave enough to speak up before before Leon um, was brave enough for all of us. So now we're, none of us are shutting up. And, but, but it was a super exciting for me watching that from the sidelines in a, in a way. Like it felt like the, the, you know, the plebs had battened down the doors and were, were taking over. And I, I felt like it was just alive in a way the theatre hadn't been in quite a while. And, and it was really about writers, women writers. You know, they're the most important ones. They're, they're, they're the, putting the voices on the stage. So, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there aren't that many interesting female characters that are being written about mm. that are making it to the main stages. So that has to change. And I mean, it's changing on television, like Handmaid's Tale at the moment. We're all gripped. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that portrayal is going to change, I think, in the next 10 years. It's all to play mm. for. Um, now, now, we were talking about collaboration, bringing different arts together. And um, Owen, you, um, you started as an architect. At first, my lazy first you know, hot take was, they're so different. But actually, then the more I started, was thinking about it, I could sort of start to see these connections. I mean, am I, am I right that there is? When you look at it kind of first off, it, like the industry of architecture is quite a bland kind of bleach thing. Whereas the thinking of space or how you kind of yeah. examine space and how you begin to create it and the geometries and, and rhythms that entails is, yeah, it's very musical-like. And um, it's had a very good effect on, on how I make things or why I make things. But there was kind of a leaving behind of, of what you kind of study there, you know, because mm. there are those rigidities to it, you know. But there is a whole kind of other, other stream of architecture that is whimsical, I suppose, mm. and a lot, more, uh, a lot freer, actually, you know, which is what, what I'd be more interested in, actually, as opposed to... <laughs> putting putting the wall up or whatever, do you know what I mean? And and, and have you left architecture behind? And no, no. So I, I actually teach in the university. So I teach architecture in Cork in, U, in UCC in Cork. Good lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, so tell us about uh, the song you're going to play us out with. Uh, so the next song is Runaway, and um, I suppose it's a song that kind of speaks to future generations or something that what we've set up is quite a disastrous thing so it's kind of dystopian in a way but it's telling our future generations to kind of run away from what we've set out for them I suppose in a way mm. um, and, and sorry just to do the bit of housekeeping here this is from your debut album um, which is called Wildly and that's, uh, that's already out yeah it's out yeah 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 so it's so much. <laughs> thank you Took the darkness from my taste 
going on tour Duke special is going on tour yeah I've been about to start recording an album songs based on the poetry of Belfast poet called Michael Longley yep so that starts in October yeah but um, well that's it from this episode of Pentastocracy I just want to thank all my guests Jen Coppinger thank you for being here Thomas thank you for being here thank you for coming along Alex and for uh, playing uh, thank you Duke special and of course me out of flower Amy Cleary thanks for our studio audience for uh, coming along and it's lovely thanks for listening and uh, we're back I think next week next week yes yes one more uh, thank you good night